This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast. The topic that we're going to discuss today is that of artificial blood and blood products. Um, these have been um, a topic of discussions, particularly uh, around issues of uh, transfusion shortages that typically occur uh, in around the summertime, as also uh, with the logistical complications and difficulties of providing blood and blood products in austere environments, uh, such would be uh, uh, the treatment of combat casualties uh, or an example of what's happening in the treatment of survivors in Haiti. Prior to really jumping onto the topic of uh, uh, use of artificial blood products, we really need to take an analysis of transfusion practices, and that is when do we, we give blood. And we've talked in other podcasts that there's a difference in the use of volume expansion versus providing blood or broad, blood or products, that when you use a crystalloid solution, you're trying to increase intravascular volume, um, uh, treat a hypo or underhydrated state, but when administering blood or blood products, what you're doing is you're basically trying to provide a carrier for oxygen in the treatment of, of peripheral shock. And the transfusion practices are a moving target. Um, it's important to realize that when you provide transfused blood, that the blood that you provide is not normal for a variety of reasons. And we've talked about this in another podcast on blood component therapy. But first of all, things such as 2,3-DPG, a molecule that helps oxygen offloading and associated with the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve is in lower concentrations. The shape of the red blood cell is not the normal biconcave echinocyte, and that involves uh, changes in how we perfuse the peripheral capillaries where the oxygen is off, really loaded and offloaded. Uh, and it's becoming more and more obvious through increasing volume of, of literature that the transfusion of autologous blood is bad. And it's bad because of reasons such as infectious disease um, in that we, we can transmit infectious particles, uh, particularly hepatitis, to the patient. Uh, there's always the concern over HIV, but the blood uh, supply is becoming increasingly more safe in, in regard of HIV. And uh, it's bad in regards of infectious disease. And, and I'm not repeating myself or saying the same thing over and over again, but infectious disease that we know that blood is immunosuppressant, that if you were to take uh, patients with similar types of injuries or similar types of disease and give them a, um, a unit of, of blood or transfuse them, that we will see a higher rate of infectious complications in the patient who is in transfused blood. A, a typical in-service type question that's been around for quite a long time is that patients who receive transfused blood also have a higher rate of metastatic disease when they're matched uh, stage per stage uh, for a cancer and have had similar operations. So we're finding more and more that the transfusion of autologous blood is not um, necessarily a good thing. The other thing that is important to keep in mind when we're talking about transfusion practices is this concept of transfusion triggers. Transfusion triggers are out. Uh, having said that, though, if you walk in any intensive care unit, people have arbitrary values in their head at which they'll consider start the transfusion of blood. 
And uh, for my residents in our unit, I will make them basically justify why they're giving a unit of blood. Uh, in one individual, a hemoglobin of 9.5 may be an indication to transfuse a particular patient. But I want to know physiologically why. Because maybe the patient has severe coronary disease. Maybe it's making them tachycardic. Maybe they're showing signs of cellular dysoxia. Um, uh, maybe they've got an elevated lactate or a... Um, uh, depressed mixed venous oxygen saturation. I want to know what those facts are. A uh, person across the hall may be quite comfortable physiologically with a hemoglobin of 6.5. So it's important that we end up looking at what is the requirements of that individual patient. Uh, Other issues at lower levels of hemoglobin are being considered more and more acceptable uh, in the literature where when I was a resident in the early 90s, we typically transfused everybody above a hemoglobin of 10 without consideration of um, their physiology or how they were responding to the anemia. Additionally, we're seeing now with particularly in, in volume resuscitation in regards to trauma, this concept of permissive hypotension and limited resuscitation. We're learning that in certain traumatic uh, uh, situations that the patient is physiologically uh, better preserved by allowing them some element of hypotension. That we know that if we give them large amounts of uh, fluid or large amounts of, of even blood in certain circumstances, we're going to drive the mean arterial pressure up and increase the rate of bleeding. Uh, in uh, circumstances where we don't have surgical control of um, the source of the bleeding. The next issue in, in discussing this topic is the issue of blood as a very viable resource. Uh, for setting aside the things that we feel that, that blood uh, is potentially hazardous, but there is a worldwide shortage of blood, and it's a worldwide problem. In 2001, 12.7% of hospitals delayed elective surgeries. Um, reported shortages for non-surgical purposes. And the other question that comes up is really, is transfusion the standard of care? And though it seems inherently obvious that in certain circumstances that if a patient is anemic, uh, we would transfuse them uh, blood. It's never been rigorously uh, uh, tested uh, by a clinical trial process. And then what is really the control for comparison? Uh, anemia, uncontrolled anemia, um, the use of a blood replacement therapy. And now that we're having alternatives available uh, in some of the uh, uh, synthetic hemoglobins or polymerized hemoglobins, we're actually having an alternative in which we can measure, uh, perhaps we could give a blood substitute uh, versus transfused blood or uh, giving uh, crystalloid uh, or doing nothing at all. Now, in order to talk about what are the blood substitutes and actually understand them a little bit, we really need to have a basic fundamental understanding of the hemoglobin molecule. Hemoglobin is a really cool molecule, uh, and I want you to kind of go back into biochemistry. If you've had biochemistry and you studied about the interactions of the hemoglobin molecule, if you haven't uh, had biochemistry, we're going to try to explain it such that you understand it. Uh, but it is a complex molecule. Hemoglobin is made up of really four subunits, and each of those four subunits is capable of binding an oxygen molecule. Um, so what happens is that if you've got four binding sites for oxygen, and none of those binding sites are occupied by an oxygen molecule, and an oxygen molecule floats along, binds to binding site number one. What that does is it tells binding site number two, hey, this oxygen, this is really good stuff. You really want to get some of this. And this tells the second binding site to bind with this oxygen molecule with a higher affinity than the first binding subsite. 
And the second binding site gets a hold of the oxygen molecule. It tells binding site number three, hey, good stuff. Get some of this. And the third binding site binds with a higher affinity than the second binding site. And finally, the third binding site does the exact same thing with the fourth binding site. And if you've ever seen what's called an oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, you don't get a straight line of binding sites, but you get kind of a sigmoidal or an S-shaped curve. And the reason why you get this curve is the interaction of the first, telling the second, telling the third, telling the fourth. And what I, what I tell people is imagine um, uh, a good movie, for instance. Uh, anybody who's done any marketing or, or tried to sell anything knows that uh, you could spend all kinds of money in advertising or you can rely on word of mouth. And, and most companies would rely on word of mouth. This is very similar to relying on word of mouth because what's happening is Binding Site 1 tells Binding Site 2 Binding site two tells binding site three, and each subsequent binding site grabs that auction with greater affinity and greater vigor than the previous one. This is something that is very difficult to reproduce. This is something that is important physiologically when we compare uh, native hemoglobin, uh, our hemoglobin, versus uh, the hemoglobin in transfused blood, and when we compare this to artificial blood substitutes. Now, there are environmental conditions that will change the molecule from a high affinity to a low affinity molecule. And this will include things like the partial pressure of oxygen, the environmental pH, and the temperature. And this is important because it allows the hemoglobin molecule to adapt to the physiological conditions which it finds itself. For instance, one of the things that I love to ask the residents is if, I, if we were to assume that a pH of 7.4 is uh, pH neutral, what would you rather have, a pH of 7.2 or a pH of 7.6? And it surprises me the vast number of, of um, residents who would say, well, you know, I'd rather have a pH of 7.6. I'd rather be alkalotic. But when you look at things like the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, is that when you have a decrease in your PA, excuse me, a decrease in your hydrogen ion concentration or an increase in your pH, that causes your oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to shift to the left. Remember, SOS is, is uh, for S is sinister, means left, sinister is not good. A movement of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the left is bad because what that means is when the hemoglobin molecule gets to the peripheral tissues, it is binding that, hemoglo that oxygen molecule more tightly in an environment where we want that, that hemoglobin molecule to give up that oxygen molecule so the cells can use it. In contrast, in an acidotic environment, the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve shifts to the right. A movement to the right is good. A movement to the right is caused by an increase in hydrogen ion concentration or a decrease in the pH. And, that, and, and therefore, when the hemoglobin molecule gets to that peripheral tissue, it encounters an acidotic environment, moves the curve to the right. It causes the oxygen molecule to be liberated from the hemoglobin molecule. Therefore, it can be used by the peripheral tissues. Um, Things get asked on in-service questions that move those curves around, partial pressure of oxygen, pH, temperature, 2,3-DPG, uh, all cause uh, differences in how the hemoglobin molecule interacts with the oxygen molecule. Now, how do they manufacture um, um, the, um, uh, basically the artificial blood? 
Well, it is no surprise that bank blood has a defined shelf life, and the question is, is what happens to that blood uh, when it, it, it expires? Well, one of the things you can do is basically take it and, and try to make blood substitutes. And so by processing a blood product, you can take the lysis of red blood cells, and it releases hemoglobin molecules. And through process of uh, purification, sterilization, and viral inactivation, you can take that you try to reclaim some of that hemoglobin molecule um, and try to make a blood substitute. Now, there are uh, different types of hemoglobin that you can use to process a, a hemoglobin uh, oxygen-carrying um, substitute. You can use human hemoglobin or animal or, or bovine sources. Or alternatively, you can just manufacture the hemoglobin through the use of recombinant technology. Now, what are the physiological challenges of making artificial blood? Well, remember that native hemoglobin, your hemoglobin, is a tetramer. It's a fancy word for four binding subunits that interact with the binding sites. And this creates the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve that we talked about. This oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve is vitally important in, in the way uh, our bodies um, uh, process and deliver oxygen. Uh, but with polymerized hemoglobin, you really don't have that binding site interaction. Therefore, your oxyhemoglobin association curve uh, is linear. It's not that sigmoidal shape. Uh, and that creates some real physiological challenges. Now, if you were making one of these hemoglobin substitutes, what would be some of the problems that you would need to overcome? The first would be that if you had the hemoglobin molecule and it's not sort of contained in a membrane, much like a red blood cell, that the hemoglobin in solution is rapidly cleared by the kidneys. And also because, remember, this four subunits, these tetramers, basically break down into smaller uh, units, dimers, which are two, basically four of the molecules, and pairs or monomers, which means they're just broken down into the individual units. So that's one problem. The other is that free hemoglobin binds with a molecule called nitric oxide. Now, nitric oxide is a very uh, potent and effective uh, vasodilator. And so when it binds to the nitric oxide, what it does is it creates uh, vasoconstriction, which is bad. And it's, it's bad for the kidneys because it can cause vasoconstriction uh, in the kidneys and cause problems uh, with hypertension. Uh, it can also cause problems with renal perfusion and, and uh, problems with uh, uh, renal function. It can also cause uh, perhaps vasoconstriction of some of the smaller vessels, namely in the heart, and cause problems with myocardial ischemia. And we've also said that free hemoglobin has an affinity for oxygen. And again, why is that bad? Well, it, it is bad because the free hemoglobin binds the oxygen, and if it doesn't release it, then it's competing with the cells for the limited amount of oxygen you have. And you don't want that. You want it to be used as a method of transporting oxygen, but not a method of competition. And that the other element is, uh, the problem is that if you've got elements of the cells, the red blood cells, and they're somehow free or fragmented in your artificial blood, what that can do is it's very toxic uh, and can create problems that we see even with uh, things like transfusion reactions. Now, there are about eight companies right now who have developed some sort of product for uh, blood substitutes. Uh, oxyglob uh, oxyglobin is approved for veterinary use. Hemopure is approved for limited use in South Africa. The National Heart and Lung and Blood Institute in 2006 issued um, a statement feeling that some of these blood substitutes showed promise. Now, keep in mind, this is January of 2010, uh, but the various side effects have prevented further development and regulatory approval. Now, Hemopure is a name of a blood substitute. 
Um, and it is a polymerized bovine hemoglobin. Okay, it has an intravascular half-life of about eight to twenty-three hours. Now, eight to twenty-three hours. So, again, put that in context of how you would perhaps use this clinically. It has a shelf life of thirty-six hours at room temperature. So, logistically, it doesn't need to be kept on ice like um, uh, bank blood. Um, uh, increase your mean arterial pressure by about 15%, uh, and that may have to do not only with the actual idea that your volume expanding, but you're actually having nitric oxide scavengers. Uh, causes a threefold increase in serum, urea, and nitrogen. And again, this goes to the issue of uh, what is it doing to the kidneys by competing with nitric oxide. Um, it's uh, been in, uh, placed in phase three trials in Europe and South Africa. And there's about $14 million in congressional funding to evaluate Hemapure uh, as far as research. Now, polyheme, uh, polyheme is made from outdated blood. This may be the blood substitute that you may have the most experience with. Um, uh, it was initially researched, so started after the Vietnam War. Uh, has intravascular half-life, again, of about 24 hours. Shelf life's longer, about 12 months uh, when refrigerated, and it's a good temporary blood substitute. So logistically, you can see here that if somebody has, for instance, uh, sustained a gunshot wound or been, um, you know, something in an austere condition, and that by using uh, polyheme with its really... Uh, a longer shelf life, particularly that requires refrigeration, you're not having to continuously maintain and turn over a blood supply. So it does provide that logistical advantage that if you are someplace um, in an austere condition, uh, perhaps in a combat situation, or even uh, in a disaster response, that if you had access to refrigeration, that you can maintain your um, blood substitute for a rather protracted period of time without having somebody continuously turn over the inventory. However, if somebody had bled down uh, to, say, a hemoglobin of 3, you could see that this has an intravascular half-life of about 24 hours. Uh, so you may eventually, they may give you a bridge until you get to to actual transfusion with autologous blood. Now, many people may be aware of the polyheme trial. It was a pre-hospital trial where there was a pre-hospital trial, a waiver of conformed consent. It was done in many places throughout the United States. And it was really comparing polyheme to the standard of care. And there was really no statistical difference in the mortality of patients who received the standard of care versus the uh, polyheme. Now, there is recombinant hemoglo uh, human hemoglobin technology. And this is manufacturing of the human hemo hemoglobin molecule. And the ability of this is it results in an unlimited supply. Because certainly you can see with something like polyheme, since you're using outdated blood, breaking it down and polymerizing the hemoglobin. This is where polyheme gets its name from. Polyheme, polymerized hemoglobin, which means instead of taking the four units of a hemoglobin molecule and making it one unit, it takes it and puts it in a long chain. Um, you're still relying on donors to provide that blood, which eventually comes outdated. So you still have that bottleneck of donation. The uh, advantage of using recombinant human hemoglobin is this is genetic engineering. You're able to go into a laboratory and produce as much hemoglobin as you'd like, and you're not limited by human donation. 
one of the drawbacks, again, with the recombinant human uh, hemoglobin technology is that you see nitric oxide scavenger rates similar to that of native hemoglobin. And remember, it's the scavenger of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a molecule that um, basically causes vasodilation, which is beneficial, and that when we scavenge that, we see perhaps renal complications and coronary complications. That complication with the recombinant hemoglobin is similar to that that we see in native hemoglobin. And an uncontrolled hemorrhage model, uh, the uh, recombinant hemoglobin uh, has performed as well as autologous blood. Now, keeping in mind that one of the major differences between these uh, hemoglobin substitutes and a red blood cell is that a red blood cell has got hemoglobin inside it, and it's wrapped by a cell membrane. That cell membrane provides some protection to the hemoglobin molecule as well as the person carrying the hemoglobin molecule because, as we've, we've said, that a free hemoglobin molecule is reasonably toxic to an individual. So, therefore, people have said, well, let's try to divide a cellular uh, hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier. Uh, basically taking the hemoglobin molecule and wrapping it in a membrane uh, very similar to uh, native blood. And the idea is it protects the tissue from the toxic effects of the hemoglobin. And this uses uh, an application of what's called nanotechnology or technology of, of uh, engineering very, very small things and really is kind of beyond what I want to talk about in this particular podcast other than the fact that this is where we're seeing the next generation of hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers uh, looking at just not taking the hemoglobin and stringing it along, but recognizing that the transportation of blood and the uh, use of hemoglobin is just not the molecule, but it's how we protect the molecule and how the hemoglobin molecule interacts with various tissues. Now, the adverse effects of some of these cellular-based hemoglobin oxygen carriers are things that we've already seen, things like hypertension, abdominal pain, skin rash, diarrhea, jaundice, uh, hemoglobinuria, fever, and stroke. So in context, we can see that we've there are several uh, potentially promising uh, hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers uh, uh, on the horizon. But what we have to recognize, too, is we also have to question our current use of blood component therapy. Uh, should we be using blood component therapy as radically as we have in years past? Certainly with the um, uh, HIV um, epidemic in the early 90s, we've dramatically changed our transfusion practices, and we continue to examine those tightly. Uh, I think that we've moved uh, beyond the idea of having a transfusion trigger for a potential intensive care unit. And those kind of things uh, will certainly abrogate our need uh, for the use of uh, hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers, either in the form of autologous blood or uh, synthetic uh, hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers. The other thing to be mindful of is that the hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers do not seem to be the panacea that people may think that they are, is that they're really a bridge of therapy because most of these hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers have uh, a shelf life, excuse me, not a shelf life, but a half-life measured in hours or perhaps a few days, uh, and you'll start breaking down. And so what they'll do is allow you to give a hemoglobin-based 
auction carrier in, say, an austere environment, either in a, uh, a remote uh, setting in a remote hospital, in a pre-hospital setting, in a combat situation or disaster relief, and it will give you time to get the patient to uh, actually autologous blood. And lastly, we're seeing a, a real strong re-examination of how we resuscitate the trauma victim. Um, it used to be that we gave these patients a lot of blood, we gave them a lot of fluids, and there's increasing evidence that um, we need to carefully re-examine how much fluid we give somebody or how much blood we give somebody. Um, do we give them uh, blood over fluid, and do we need to resuscitate them back to what we would consider a quote-unquote normal vital signs? And uh, there's this concept of permissive uh, hypotension, which again is a topic for another podcast. You've been listening to the podcast, um, ICU Rounds. My name's Jeffrey Guy. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.